Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day especially the joy you feel when you share that love with others. And certainly we are called to do that every day of our life, but in a crisis like this, especially now. As we do each week, I'd like to begin our program with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. Men came and went. Peter was disappointed and said rather harshly to Jesus, Master, I'm displeased with you. The disciples turned around quickly and looked at Peter, some with looks of astonishment on their faces. Others said, I can't believe what he said. Still others were angry. It was little John who said, Peter, how dare you speak that way? Peter looked at John and said, please forgive me. John responded, no, no, you should not ask me for my forgiveness. You should ask the master, our teacher. Jesus did not say anything, but there was a twinkle in his eye when he asked Peter, what is so displeasing to you? Peter sat down roughly and answered, I'll tell you, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I ache, and we didn't receive a single coin from anyone in the entire group today. Jesus replied, is that new, Peter? Do we always receive coins for the poor? Do we always have enough food? Are you always filled with energy? And the disciples just laughed. Jesus said, Peter, please forgive me if I've offended you. Peter began to laugh and said, Master, you have once again turned the tables on me. And Peter asked, Master, why should we be forgiving? Why should we try to understand people as best as we can? Jesus answered, forgiveness is a beautiful gift, but not everyone is able to give it. It is very difficult for some to say, I am sorry, or please forgive me. But I tell you this, the man is wise who can. For in my Father's home there are many mansions, many doors to be opened, and yes, many doors which are closed to some. But if you forgive with a loving and open heart, There will be greater joy in the kingdom of heaven for you. Judah said, And if you can't say, I forgive, with a loving and open heart, but you say that 
You forgive but only mean it partially. What happens then, Master? Jesus answered, The Heavenly Father, our Creator, knows each of us very well. He knows every thought, word, and deed. He can read our hearts like an open book. And then Jesus looked down at his hands, turned his palms up toward the sky, showed them to his disciples, bent down and rubbed them in the earth. Then he rubbed them together and asked, What do you see? Judas replied, Dirty hands. Jesus shook his head and said, That is what the Heavenly Father sees when you have sinned, when you are not truthful to yourself or to one another. He sees the darkness in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. But if you return to him with a clean heart, you shall experience greater joy. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in his latest book titled, When Narcissism Comes to the Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. The life of Jesus is the life dynamically alive in us. And yet, we seem to live not from our deep true self, but from contingent selves, the masks that work for a season, but ultimately rob us of joy and hope. And yet we're invited with Jesus to humble ourselves. We're invited to lay down the masks that protect and defend and to enter vulnerably into union and communion with one another. This was Paul's hope. This is my hope. I cannot live from this place of depth and union unless I'm willing to see myself clearly, to see the narcissist who lurks within me. Having worked with diagnosably narcissistic women and men for 20 years, I'm more mindful of my own profoundly self-protective strategies. I realize that while I may not spike on the narcissistic spectrum on a psychological test, I am not immune to grandiosity, exploitation, manipulation, absence of empathy, an evasion of my true self anchored in God-union. I've come to realize that I cannot help them until I clearly see myself clearly, until I move with compassion to wounded, weary, and worry parts of me that seem to live more loudly than my true self. Our guest this evening and the author of these words is Chuck DeGrote. He's a professor of pastoral care and Christian Spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan, and Senior Fellow at Newbegin House of Studies in San Francisco. He served as pastor at churches in Orlando and San Francisco and founded two church-based counseling centers. He is a licensed therapist, spiritual director, and the author of Toughest People to Love and Wholeheartedness. Professor Chuck DeGroote, welcome to Amplify. Thank you so much, Ron. It's good to be with you. How nice to have you. Am I reaching you in Michigan? Is that where you're at now? You sure are. Okay. Uh, on the west coast of Michigan, right on Lake Michigan, a town called Holland. How how are things going in Michigan with the virus? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, so there is a stay-at-home order in Michigan and has been for uh, maybe a week now, and uh, Detroit is a hot spot. And so we are on the other side of the state, 
uh, but we're very mindful of of Detroit right now and what's happening over there. And uh, and so uh, I've got a friend, I've got a student actually, a doctor of ministry student who has the virus right now, and we're mm-hmm. praying for him and for his family. But but yeah, Michigan uh, is getting hit pretty hard right now, and the numbers seem to be increasing as you see in the news daily. And we have we have a uh, priest in our diocese who was just quarantined uh, today mm. uh, with with the virus and another one being being checked. Um, and now we're we're hearing that this may not um, end, not end, but there won't be maybe a, a, a much larger change until the end of of April. As a as a yeah. therapist, as a spiritual director's. How do you help people who are feeling overwhelmed by the way reality is touching on their lives right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, this is a disruption that, that uh, in many ways, the average ordinary person didn't expect, right? And so when we're disrupted in this kind of way, um, we see uh, significant spikes in anxiety and depression uh, we see trauma responses, fight or fight, flight or freeze or fawn. And so I want to be really attentive to how people are experiencing this, what they're feeling emotionally, but how they're experiencing it in their bodies. Uh, and, and you see all different kinds of responses. And so when I'm attuned to people uh, nowadays, what I'm hearing a lot is um, I'm always anxious. I can't turn it off or I'm sliding into depression and I'm not sure of a way out and things like that. So this is significant. Even if you don't have the virus, you may be experiencing a more significant uh, mental health concern than than you've experienced recently, and you've got to be attentive to that. How about those who feel afflicted in heart and soul, spiritually, wondering where God is in all of this? Yeah, right. Yeah, so... I had a conversation like this with someone the other day. In fact, we started talking a little bit about, about the dark night of the soul, thinking yes. of the cross, and how, how in many ways uh, our smaller go- gods are being ripped out from under us right now, you know, our gods of comfort and ease. And, um, and so mindful of that, I think we've got to be aware of what happens when um, our, our, you know, our, our, the things that we're normally used to doing are taken away from us and how we've equated those things with a sense of God's provision in our lives, you know, and ask, how does God show up in times of loneliness or sadness or, or feelings of emptiness? Um, I do think in seasons like this, we, we realize how we fill ourselves up, and hopefully people were already asking these questions during the season of Lent, but I think right. uh, coronavirus is sort of an enforced Lent, you know, where we're being deprived of things, and we're having to ask, where are you, God, in the midst of this? Right, and um, I'm wondering why it is that people turn to God before they turn to Lucifer, for example, turn to evil that exists in the world. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you know, folks are, folks are asking really hard existential questions right now, and you probably hear these kinds of questions all the time in your work, but uh, not the kinds of questions that they were asking maybe a month ago. And so mm. people in our roles, I think, uh, have the privilege of being there in really hard conversations and and then also having to be attentive to our own needs in this season. I'm mindful of my own 
uh, anxiety and how I'm prone to depression and how all of that is kind of alive in this season as well. And prone to narcissism too, which is yeah, what right. you say in your book. And uh, yeah, as I right. as I was reading, I'm saying, well, he's talking about me too. Uh, yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah. I'm not perfect here. So let's yeah. let's let's talk about the book and where you can see an application to what's going on today as a spiritual director yeah. and a therapist. Please, yeah. Yeah. please feel free uh, t- uh, to yeah. do that because the longer this goes on. I guess yeah. the more difficult it's going to be for people to deal with it, especially when the expectation was given that, you know, it's not going to be that long, but it is going to be that long now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this this will flare all of our narcissism, all of our egocentricity, you know, not that we're narcissistic personality disorder, but, you know, those traits that exist in each and every one of us that go back to Genesis chapter three, where... I want it my way uh, in my time. And so this is challenging to each of us, and it poses, as you say, emotional questions and spiritual questions that we have to wrestle with. And I know, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I often talk about when I talk about narcissism in the Church, and especially among leaders in the Church, and I, I talk about it in myself, narcissistic traits, who, who of us—think uh, about it this way. I, I was uh, ordained 22 years ago, I guess now— And uh, there aren't very many of us who would dare to get on stage or on an altar and speak on behalf of God, right? When most people in the country are anxious about public speaking, there are some of us who not only public speak, but we speak on behalf of God. This is the Word of the Lord. And so there is a kind of maybe latent narcissism in those of us who choose to go into ministry and speak, uh, speak the words of God. Tell us a little bit then about uh, the concept of narcissism. You deal with that in your book throughout, yeah. and and yeah. how we might experience you. Uh, you write that it both mystifies and terrifies, and the the effects on us are painful and crazy making. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't expect to experience narcissism in ecclesial context, in church parish context, uh, but we do. And what's frightening about it in the Church is that, you know, when we talk about narcissism, we talk about an abuse of power at times, or we talk about a, um, a need for esteem or affection. We talk about a lack of empathy. And those are the last things you'd think about when you think, uh, think of a minister, a pastor, a priest, a bishop. And yet those are the very features that we see in narcissistic leaders in, in the Church, you know, and and, and what's striking about this is that we follow Jesus, the suffering servant. You know, we follow the humble Messiah um, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing. And yet uh, we are prone to protect ourselves. We are prone to uh, want people to um, see us and, and maybe laud us or worship us or approve of us. Um, we love when our churches overflow we love when God seems to give us platforms to speak from. And so this is what's really dangerous, especially today in our social media age, when pastors compare and compete with one another. Uh, it's especially dangerous today. And a lot of people would be surprised, as you point out, that many churchgoers are attracted to it for spiritual inspiration and motivation. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think... We like the shiny package, you know? This is how things are presented in commercials to us, the shiny 
new truck or um, the, the pretty model telling us to buy the pool or go on this vacation or whatever it is, right? And we like to see the shiny pastor, you know, whether in your tradition and robed up or perhaps in my tradition with, uh, you know, the coolest clothes or whatever it might be, everything in between, right? And who yes. speaks with a sense of authority. Uh, and speaks the words of God on behalf of God, and tells us uh, something good and something hopeful, we are uh, drawn to uh, these, these figures uh, like moths to a flame. And there's something about them that are deeply attractive to us, and especially those of us, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, that I've been over the years prone to some insecurity myself, and I found myself attaching to leaders who are stronger or more confident than me, And I've had to ask myself in my own counseling and spiritual direction over the years, why is it that you're always prone to connect to someone, Chuck, that that is stronger, more powerful, uh, more charismatic than you? And linking that back to my own insecurity, my need for a strong leader, a strong presence in my own life. Uh, And it's a form of idolatry, isn't it? Um, Like, this is who God is supposed to be to us and for us, and yet we look for it in earthly leaders. And, of course, you went right at it. Um, the fact that you experienced it in yourself is what motivated you uh, to uh, study yeah. it. And when we come back yeah. after this break that I'm working toward now, um, throughout the book you talk about its connection to shame. Uh, that's one of the most important yeah. concepts, I think, in the Church. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. uh, you point out that what might appear to be a gift is not always a gift. So we're going to take this break now. Yeah. We'll be back with uh, Chuck DeGroat to talk about his book, When Narcissism Comes to the Church. Welcome back to uh, Amplify. If um, if uh, my guest was a narcissist uh, himself, we're talking about his book, When Narcissism Comes to the Church. I would I could interview him, him as uh, Pastor Chuck DeGroat or Dr. Chuck DeGroat, because he has a Ph.D., or Professor Chuck DeGroat, but all he wants to be known as is Chuck DeGroat. Uh, very down right. to earth, and I've hardly talked to him, uh, not probably 20 minutes, and I and I just feel that already. I feel it uh, in his voice, admitting he admits himself, and certainly my reading the book, uh, I can see where uh, there have been certainly uh, narcissism in my in my personality. At times, for a lot of reasons, but let's not talk about myself. Um, throughout the book, one of the main points you make is is about the connection of narcissism to shame. Explain that a little bit for us. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, your opening was good because I think you know e- even even using titles is a form of coping with shame. You know, because shame is that sense that I'm not enough, that there's something fundamentally deficient about me. And so to cope with shame, uh, from a very early age, we find uh, all kinds of different ways. And each of us has, a. I talk about in the book, the different faces of narcissism. Each of us has different ways, different faces we wear to cope with our shame. Some of us are perfectionists, and some of us are helpers, and some are achievers, and some are intellectuals, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and some of us need lots of titles before our names, right? Yes. Uh, but yeah, shame, shame is that early wound uh, that we've got to go back to and we've got to look at if we really want to deal with our narcissism. And it, it's usually around some form of 
feeling humiliated or traumatized or missed or misunderstood or neglected, where we we're left with a deep question, what's wrong with me? Uh, and, and we answer that question on our own, just as Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. And um, I love this quote you have from Gregory of Nyssa, our God-like yeah. beauty is hidden between, beneath, beneath curtains of shame. We can reflect yeah. on that, much like uh, the news item that surprised me uh, when we took our break, that Easter may be the peak of deaths in the United States. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, just reflecting yeah, wow. on that. Um, in terms of there's there's some meaning there, but um, there, there's a homily there, some, there somewhere. But another yeah. point that you, you make... Um, a lot is that we need to be careful not to use labels. Why is that? Yeah, well, here I am saying that when I've written a book using a label, <laughs> and so that's that's tricky. Uh, and we do use labels in 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 my work, in our work, uh, but we've got to be very careful about them because one one of the things I say in there is that a label does not describe our deepest, truest selves. I'm a big fan of Thomas Merton, and uh, you know Merton talks about the false self and the true self. I might say false selves that we wear, but the false self never describes our deepest, truest self in God, you know, and I have to remember that whoever I'm sitting across from is an image bearer of God, and so that person can't be reduced to a label, addict, narcissist, borderline, dependent, sinner, saint, uh, but we are uh, fundamentally women and men who are known by God and uh, loved by God, the beloved of God, and so that seems to me to be very important in this so that we don't use labels to power over people or to put people in boxes. Um, some of the other items in your book that uh, bear discussion that uh, we don't have time for is that uh, a seemingly wise and influential person can be manipulative, abusive, and conniving, and power and pastors can hide profound shame the pastorate is no longer seen as a noble vocation as it once was. And I think I've been experiencing that uh, in, a, in our own area, in our own diocese. Yeah. No yeah. longer seen as a noble vo vocation. Is there such a thing then as a narcissistic church, and how do they become that? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, and uh, sometimes when you find a narcissistic leader, you might actually find uh, a narcissistic system. And the systems bear many of the same traits as the leader, but now it's inhabited as a whole. And so I tell the story of working with a Christian organization a number of years ago, and this Christian organization boasted about all the good that they did in the world and in their neighborhood, how special they were, how they did it better than any other Christian organization, how they were more special and more giving and uh, more uh, exercised better stewardship. And it was all us, 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 we're the best. Uh, mm -hmm. And the leader, a friend of mine, the new leader of the organization, saw it uh, pretty, pretty much right away, called me up and said, what do I do? And uh, part of me wanted to say, run for the hills, but uh, the reality was this was embedded in a system, and he was called in to be the leader of a system. It wasn't one singular person in it. It was actually embodied in, in, in the whole of the system. And we realized how narcissism can be a kind of groupthink uh, at times, where 
there's a whole tribe of people who who uh, think the same way and boast in the same ways and share the same kinds of maybe features, arrogant features of narcissism. And um, you write that uh, every redemptive story of one who is narcissistic is a story of death to resurrection, yeah. something to reflect on in this Lenten season. Um, yeah. That um, narcissism is not fundamentally self-love, but about an escape from love. Tell us mm. a bit about that. Yeah, that's that's a, uh, that gets it a bad take on the myth of narcissists. You know that narcissist was in love with himself, and what we know now psychologically, I think what we've known spiritually for many years, is that one who exercises true self-love, as in love the Lord your God as you love yourself, um, not, not in a selfish way, um, but in a way that is ultimately self-compassionate because it draws upon the compassion of God. Well, that person is, is uh, the person with that kind of self-love is, is certainly capable of loving others well. Uh, this is a healthy individual. Uh, but it's usually the people who are not loved well, uh, who do not know that they are the beloved of God, as Henry Nouwen might say, and and in the absence of that love, they go seeking after that love in another. And of course, the story of narcissists is he goes seeking after it in a mirror image of himself. And uh, I, I think narcissists, I say in the book, are looking for mirror-hungry followers, people that will reflect back to him what he wants to hear. You are the best, or or he or she, I should say, but you're the best. You're the best preacher. Uh, you're the best liturgist. You're the best bishop. You are the best movement leader. You're the best church planter. Uh, uh, that That's really what we see when there's this absence of self-love. And let me amplify on that by reading from your book. I want people to understand sure. not only are you a good guest, you're also a wonderful writer. You write, we're out of touch with ourselves our hearts, our story, our feelings. We walk the earth using others and using things to satisfy the deep ache within. In doing so, we leave behind debris fields of pain, broken relationships, and shattered dreams. Shame is fundamentally about an inner disconnection arising from our childhoods that leads to relational disconnection in the present. In the absence of real connection and intimacy, we search for a substitute. We use and manipulate people, food, substances, even spirituality, in a search for the inner completion we long for. At its most extreme, narcissism is narcissism can manifest in violence, bullying, coercion, and lawlessness, all the while, a massive iceberg of shame is driving it. And so you're pointing out that all addictions begin in shame. Yeah. That's right. That's right, all addictions. And so this is just yet another manifestation of that. And I think this goes back to, again, this goes back to how I understand the, the, the story, the original story of humanity and how we're looking for love in all the wrong places, right? And, and there are some among us who build Towers of Babel, you know, who uh, form great armies, um, go into battle, uh, who accumulate wealth. Uh, 
And these these are sometimes uh, the Davids and Solomons of the world, right? These are sometimes mm-hmm. people who are considered to be godly, spiritual leaders. I even think of, of Peter in John 21, who after Jesus asked him, do you love me three times? And he responds, of course, you know I love you. Uh, at the end of that, Jesus sort of poses this picture of what will happen to Peter over the years. You know, he'll gradually lose control and maybe even lose his life. And Peter, at the end of that, looks at John and says, well, what about him? You know, always comparing, always competing. Life life can never be lived from a place of deep rest and a deep sense of our belovedness in God. And uh, you go back to Adam and Eve also, indicating that it's more compelling both theologically and psychologically to see shame as the underlying force that propelled them, Adam and Eve, toward the forbidden fruit. Yeah. Yeah, there's a part of me that thinks, and you don't hear this from very many theologians, but there's a part of me that thinks that they they were battling a sense of enoughness even before they grasped for the fruit. Is God enough? You know, am, am I enough? Have I been given enough? Well, I'm not sure. Um, mm. I, I, I see this fruit, and it represents uh, knowledge, and so maybe I will grasp for that. And even in the grasping, there's a sense of a perception of lack. And, and I think that that sense of deficiency or lack or scarcity is, is a kind of a sign of shame. And so it's, it's right there from the very beginning, and it's right there just below the surface. Even now, as I'm talking to you, am I adequate? Am I answering the questions well enough? Each and every one of us mm. has this. I, I suspect that when you end your radio program, was it a good program? That I, yes. maybe, maybe you're a little further along than I am, but I ask these questions all the time. Well, after 45 years, I sort of take a lot of things for granted. It's like I've I've done yeah. those things so often in the past, it's like normal. Don't even think mm. about it. Tell us, wow. a, tell us about the uh, nine faces of narcissism um, and yeah. your use of the Enneagram for that. Enneagram, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I use this loosely, I hold this loosely, and I'm not a... Uh, certified Enneagram teacher, and this is not an Enneagram book, but the Enneagram, if your listeners are unfamiliar with it, basically says that there are nine faces that we live out of in the world, nine different, maybe some people might call them personality types, although that I don't think that does justice to what the Enneagram is all about. I, I would call them instead ways of coping, perhaps even sinfully in the world, uh, based on our stories of pain and shame and so these nine faces for me come out of 20-plus years of clinical experience of seeing how narcissism it does not just show up with the kind of standard caricature of grandiosity, but how it shows up in a variety of different ways. And even clinicians say that narcissism isn't merely grandiose. It's sometimes vulnerable, meaning that narcissism is sometimes uh, seen in more passive ways or more subtle ways or passive-aggressive ways. And so as I walk through, and we obviously can't walk through all nine, but I talk about uh, the number one, the perfectionist. Uh, This is a person who kind of shows up somewhat lawyerly and always needs to be right. The number two, the helper, the savior, the benevolent narcissist who's always helping, but 
the need uh, that is uh, underneath is the need to be helped, to be loved. And so they're helping to be helped, loving to be loved, or the three, the achiever who's always on stage, but doesn't know himself or herself when, when he or she mm-hmm. is not on stage. And so this may be a more classic caricature of narcissism. And there are others like the, the, the intellectual narcissist or the, the powerful, um, uh, kind of more powerful, powerful bully that shows up as a narcissist, or the hedonist who's always looking for the next form of pleasure. And these are simply uh, nine different forms that narcissism could take in our unique uh, individual personalities. It was interesting to me that you saved uh, uh, type one, the perfectionist for last, and maybe uh, because uh, you believe that it shows up more often in the church. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 we really don't have numbers on these kinds of things. I, I do think that when it comes to perfectionism, you'd probably agree, too. We see a lot of that in the Church, and I see a lot of that in the New Testament, in Pharisaism. You think about Jesus confronting the perfectionism and moralism of, of his day, and so uh, perfectionism has a long kind of sordid history in the Church, and it's probably one of the more common faces. But we see a lot of the benevolent narcissist or the achiever, uh, the intellectual. We see a lot of these show up in their own unique ways. Do we as a church sometimes push people into it in terms of our expectations or uh, the way we interpret Scripture? Wow, yeah, I wonder about that. And I'd be hesitant to, to say that one particular theological system does this more, but I do think in our own ways we set people up. Uh, we set pastors or priests or bishops, even popes, up to be mini gods before us. And uh, I suspect that if you're not a humble priest, that when someone comes to confession, confesses their sins to you, and you absolve them, you might walk away thinking, "Well, I've got some power," hmm. you know. And I right. know in my many years of doing spiritual direction, I'll walk away at times thinking, "Wow, I'm just so helpful. I'm such a gifted yes. human being." To make people feel just a little bit better about how they're doing or what they're feeling. So I do think that we are sort of unwittingly set up to be just a little lower than the angels, you know, as the psalm says, just a little lower than God at times. And I know that when I put on my clerical collar and I preach, there's just a little bit of a sense of, I, I kind of know what I'm talking about here. I'm kind of an authority on these things. And if I was a member of your congregation, I'd probably feed that to you, right? Say, oh, you are so wonderful. Uh, You are so... We're so glad to have you. Don't ever leave us. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) You you talk about uh, 10 characteristics. Uh, We just have uh, three minutes before we take our next break. Sure. But uh, uh, 10 of them are... All decision-making centers on them. Impatience or lack of ability to listen to others. Mm delegating without proper authority or with too many limits, feelings of entitlement, feeling threatened or intimidated by other talented staff, needing to be the best and brightest in the room, and then you add four, inconsistency yeah. and impulsiveness, praising and withdrawing, intimidation of others. Say, say a little bit uh, in the time left about the, the four that you have identified. Yeah, so these are, of course, all of these are things that I've seen over the years in my work, and I do consulting with churches around these kinds of things. Um, the four that I identify, the first is inconsistency and impulsivity or impulsiveness. These are leaders who 
are, are not the same uh, uh, every day. Uh, they show up with different visions and um, different, uh, uh, sometimes uh, different assignments for people, and people don't ever really know what to expect. And so there's a sense that everything's always changing at our church. He's always changing things. Um, the second one, praising and withdrawing. He might love you for a season, and but then, then he perceives that maybe you don't love him as much, and so he pulls away from you and rejects you. Three, intimidation of others. He can show up as a bully. Uh, he can be terribly manipulative. Even, even a, a pastor, a priest, can uh, show up with a kind of bullying intimidation that uh, alienates people under them. And then the fourth one is pronounced vulnerability, F-A-U-X. Not vulnerability, but vulnerability. And this is a false vulnerability, a sort of false empathy that makes others think that they care, but there really isn't a sense that they, they genuinely care. They're just sort of faking it to get your, your affection um, or to engender your loyalty. And um, we've come up against uh, the, uh, right. our next break, but um, there's a point in which we need to address our own pain from such a person, right? From such a pastor. Absolutely. Uh, and so this is where and we could pick up with this after, but we've got to get care for ourselves, address the abuse or trauma that we've experienced. Good. Okay, our guest this evening is Chuck DeGroat. We're talking about his latest book, which is titled When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. So we're going to take this break and then we'll be right back. <laughs> 